0: Long History, Sir Walter Raleigh's The Discovery of Guyana Top 10 Surprises. Welcome to another episode of Long History's Top 10 Surprises. Here we're going to look at Sir Walter Raleigh's The Discovery of Guyana and we'll just take a look at 10 things that stood out in the document. You might have caught one of our previous episodes of Top 10 Surprises. Generally when we finish one of our longer documents we like to take a bit of a gap and then come back to it and try to think of what still stands out about the document. And in this way, with the top 10 events, the previous episode, it's two different ways of looking at the document. It's also one way of introducing the document. And so if you're not sure whether you fancy listening to a whole document or not, I know there's quite a few episodes in some of these series, give the top 10 events and top 10 surprises episodes a try. And then you'll get a sense of the flavour of the original document. The top 10 surprises episodes actually also serve us to give us a bit more time to prepare the next document for recording on long history so that's well underway now and to be informed of when that's released don't forget to subscribe so here we go with Sir Walter Alice the discovery of Guyana top 10 surprises so as always there are no real rules and there's no particular order i don't think to these surprises and the first one Is perhaps the most surprising aspect of Sir Walter Raleigh's document compared with the other documents I've covered in long history. And it's basically the lack of events. Often these documents are sort of diaries of events but here there's so many digressions that the actual purpose of the document becomes unclear. But one thing is certain is that it isn't a straightforward travelogue or an account of an expedition. And Raleigh himself does seem to acknowledge this He seems to be aware of the strange structure of this document. For example, he says here, at the beginning of episode 13, he says, and so I will return again to our journey, which for this third day we finished and cast anchor again near the continent on the left hand between two mountains, the one called Aroami and the other Ayo. Now he starts with that phrase, and so I will return again to our journey. And he puts this in because he's basically had a reasonably long digression about the poisons used in the area in the previous, at the end of the previous episode. And this isn't the only time where Raleigh seems to become aware that he's gone off on a tangent. But he does sum up this kind of lack of journey in this text in the introduction in episode 1, in the following quotation. After I had displanted Don Antonio de Berrio, who was upon the same enterprise, leaving my ships at Trinidad, at a port called Curiapam, I wandered 400 miles into the said country by land and river. So it's that particular phrase, I wandered 400 miles. But such a buccaneering man, recounting apparently a great journey, just to say that you wandered around, is a kind of an interesting admission about your own journey. And if you've followed all of the document, you'll know that apart from episode 3 where he crosses the Atlantic to Trinidad, The journey itself only begins in episode 9, that's of 18 episodes. And as it by episode 15 and 16 is already turning back. So the journey itself, and it is a very long journey ultimately, with all the introductions and the long conclusion as well, the journey itself perhaps doesn't even take up a half of this document. So that's the first surprise here, where I initially thought this was going to be a travelogue, another travelogue. Instead it turned into something else. So that's the first surprise that this is a different type of document. There aren't many events and there isn't really much of a journey. The second surprise I've called the cliched enmity with the Spanish and I'm not totally pleased with that phrase but what I wanted to say here was that the Spanish are only the enemies. There's no intricacy to those relations even despite the fact that Raleigh does have dealings with his man, as we'll look at later. But it is clear and quite I suppose historically understandable that Raleigh understands the Spanish as being the enemy and pretty much nothing more. And he uses this enmity in a rather manipulative way perhaps in the following quotation. This is from episode 15 when he gives his reasons for turning back and giving yet another reason why he hasn't got so much gold. And he basically says in the following quotation He would rather leave on good terms with the local people than antagonise them and take their gold, and to behave like the Spanish and make them hate him. So there is very much relying on the English perception of the Spanish as the enemy and nothing more. He's even given it as a reason for his return. Working with this notion that the Spanish can only be the enemies, can only be the bad guys, and that the English can only be the good guys in this scenario. Here's the quotation. I would rather have lost the sack of one or two towns, although they might have been very profitable, than to have defaced or endangered the future hope of so many millions, and the great good and rich trade which England may be possessed of thereby. I am assured now that they will all die, even to the last man against the Spaniards, in hope of our succour in return. So the surprise there is the clichéd enmity there all of the local people will rise up against the Spanish and all of them will support the English. This is where the document becomes a bit unbelievable. So that's surprise number two. And the next surprise is about that man I mentioned in the previous surprise and it's the flimsiness of Raleigh's sources and the fact that he's put so much trust in Berrio. And I'm not quite sure how explicit he is in the document. But the more you look at it the more you realise that pretty much all his anecdotes as far as I can see have come from this man Berrio. And Raleigh says this about Berrio from episode 4. This Berrio is a gentleman well descended and had long served the Spanish king in Milan, Naples and the Low Countries and elsewhere, very valiant and liberal and a gentleman of great assuredness and of a great heart. Now this description, it's very nice and it sort of belies my previous surprise actually because he's describing Berrio as a nice man. But it's worth remembering and it's kind of glossed over in the text that Raleigh had previously stated that he didn't trust Berrio because he had killed some Englishmen I think the year before and that he'd gone to battle with Berrio in some sort of way on Trinidad and had, as far as I can see, although again it's slightly glossed over, he had taken him prisoner. So as far as I can see again... All the information that Raleigh got from Barrio, he got from him when he was his prisoner. And despite all this, Raleigh just seems to believe everything he said and to recount it here. And Raleigh even says how he's offended Berrio in the following quotation, a quotation which takes place in episode 8 and which comes at the end of all of Barrio's anecdotes. Raleigh then says, I told him that I had resolved to see Guyana, and that it was the end of my journey and the cause of my coming to Trinidad, and then a few sentences later, this is Berrio's reaction, Berrio was stricken into great melancholy and sadness, and used all the arguments he could to dissuade me, and also assured the gentlemen in my company that it would be labour lost, and that they should suffer many miseries if they proceeded. So this is all curious. On the one hand, Raleigh is saying that this is a friendly man, well-born, valiant and liberal, but when this man he apparently trusts tells him that it will be a waste of time to try this trip Raleigh then chooses to ignore him so amidst all this kind of muddiness it's hard to know where to situate yourself. Berrio in captivity gave all these tales to Raleigh and was supposed to just believe them all when Raleigh himself ignores Berrio's advice in the end. So it's all very strange The overall surprise being that despite the flimsiness of these sources, which are essentially from one man, one man's rumours, it's a surprise that Raleigh puts so much trust in Berrio. The next surprise I've titled Raleigh the Buccaneer. Buccaneer is a great word and I guess if I was thinking of an example of a buccaneering person I would think of Sir Walter Raleigh, but thinking again, what does he actually do here? He's capable of telling tall tales, I can see that. But where is the actual, for want of a better word, buccaneering? And there are details like the following in episode 16 that I find surprising for this supposedly buccaneering man. Here we go. After I perceived that to pass the said river would require half a day's march more, I was not able myself to endure it, and therefore I sent Captain Keymis with six shots to go on, So this apparently buccaneering man, happy to lead from the front, basically says here, and it's not the only time, that he's not able to endure this particular aspect of the voyage. And it did seem strange in episode 15 when Raleigh comes up with so many reasons to turn back. And throughout the document, his insistence on the wealth of El Dorado is undermined by that simple question, which he never quite answers, which is, where is the gold? So is Raleigh a buccaneer or is he just a storyteller? So that's surprise number three. This way that Raleigh presents himself as a buccaneering spirit, despite this strange lack of evidence of him actually behaving in a buccaneering way. And this feeds into the next surprise, which I've termed the chip on Raleigh's shoulder. And we mentioned in the Top 10 Events episode, the previous episode, how long the initial introduction to this document is and it even reaches into a second episode, episode two, and it's here in this second introduction in particular, where Raleigh almost gets a bit whiny in his defensiveness, for example in the following quote, It is very true that had all their mountains been of massy gold, it was impossible for us to have made any longer stay to have wrought the same. And who hath seen, with what strength of stone the best gold ore is environed, he will not think it easy to be had out in heaps, and especially by us, who had neither men, instruments, nor time, as it is said before, to perform the same. So in this quotation, I get the sense of a man in a hole who should just stop digging. Okay, you didn't bring back much gold. You didn't have the time or the manpower. Okay, fair enough. Let's move on. But Raleigh keeps insisting over and over again about the wealth of this area, almost highlighting the fact that he didn't bring any of it back with him. So that's the fourth surprise which I've called the chip on Raleigh's shoulder, this defensiveness that he has. And I think we're on to surprise number five now and this is the kind of brazen fantasy in this text. I think I saw somewhere that this book contributed to the legend of El Dorado quite significantly and I suppose it's hard to know what to conclude because Raleigh clearly does want to think that El Dorado exists. And keeps on going over and over again about the detail and the evidence he's got for its existence. But you do wonder if he actually believes it himself. And when he gives details about Amazonian women, for example, and Crystal Mountains, would people have actually believed him or would they have just wanted to believe him? I guess it's hard to put yourself in the place of a person from those times. And I know I would probably have struggled to believe anyone who told me that there was an animal that bounced. But kangaroos do exist. And I've got a quotation here about one particular group of fantasy people called the Ewaipanoma. And note Raleigh's particular insistence that what he's saying is true here. Next unto Ari, there are two rivers, Atoika and Kaura, and on that branch which is called Kaura are a nation of people whose heads appear not above their shoulders, which, although it may be thought a mere fable, Yet, for mine own part, I am resolved it is true, because every child in the provinces of Aramaya and Kanuri affirm the same. They are called Iwaipanoma. They are reported to have their eyes in their shoulders, and their mouths in the middle of their breasts, and that a long train of hair groweth backward between their shoulders. Now this is another one where you think, well, could that be true in some way? Were they just people who didn't have much of a neck, for example? Or is it just complete fantasy? But then if so why is Raleigh giving us this particular fantasy? These people don't seem to have gold for example. So it's just a curiosity and a very major feature of this text, the open fantasy that exists throughout it. So that's surprise number five, the open fantasy here. Now we've just had open fantasy and now we've got open fawning as this surprise. And it's something that's quite revealing about the personality of Raleigh. We've already said he likes to give the impression of this buccaneering spirit, but seems happier to send his other men to do the more arduous parts of the journey. Yet in this quotation we've got a man who's openly fawning. This is from episode four in Trinidad. By my Indian interpreter, which I carried out of England, I made them understand that I was the servant of a queen who was the great cacique of the north and a virgin, and had more cacique under her than there were trees in that island, that she was an enemy to the Castellani in respect of their tyranny and oppression, and that she delivered all such nations about her, as were by them oppressed. And a sentence or two further on, I showed them Her Majesty's picture, which they so admired and honoured, as it had been easy to have brought them idolatrous thereof. So apparently they so admired this picture of the Queen that they almost worshipped it like an idol. So, Raleigh openly tells us how he's spreading the fame of Queen Elizabeth throughout Northern South America, which perhaps makes it clear what this document is ultimately about and who it's ultimately for. But the explicitness of this, and the lack of subtlety, is surprise number six. Now, surprise number seven, I wasn't sure what to call it, I've called it The Padding, but perhaps it could also be called The Blinding Us With Science, and for me it's always something that sets the alarm bells ringing. When there's actually too much detail and I've got a quotation here from episode 15 which almost seems to confirm this. But to speak more of these rivers without the description were but tedious and therefore I will leave the rest to the description. Now by description there I think he's referring to a map and Raleigh has basically just gone through a long list of rivers but as he says without a map it's hard to situate yourself. But here he seems to be alluding to something that occurs quite a lot in this text. We've got islands and rivers crisscrossing this, that and the other. And beyond the valley of Amario Capana I remember there was gold and beyond this place and that place. But it's never conclusive. And the more of these loose details that Raleigh gives, the more he blinds us with this kind of science, I suppose it's geography in this case, the more you think, well yes, but where is it? Where is the gold? Tell us where it is. But there is a lot of this kind of padding, as I've called it. But I just see this as a a kind of a distraction by words. So that's surprise number seven, the padding in this text, the blinding with science. Despite that, however, we've got the eighth surprise, which is the repeated insistence of the existence of El Dorado. When you think of what Raleigh actually does on this voyage, he basically goes up and down a river. It's a very epic river. He suspects there'll be gold here, there and everywhere, but he doesn't actually find it. That's fair enough, but he turns what could have been a modest little account of a reasonably epic journey, it has to be said anyway. But he turns it into this proposal for conquering the area. And it all centres on the existence of El Dorado. I've got a quotation here from episode 4. And if any else shall be enabled thereunto and conquer the same, I assure him thus much, he shall perform More than ever was done in Mexico by Cortes, or in Peru by Pizarro, whereof the one conquered the enter of Montezuma, the other of Guascar and Atabalipa. So as early on as episode 4, and actually much earlier than this, Raleigh is comparing the potential conquest of this area with that of Mexico and Peru. Later on in the last episode, episode 18, he goes back to this theme. Those commanders and chieftains that shoot at honour and abundance shall find there more rich and beautiful cities, more temples adorned with golden images, more sepulchres filled with treasure than either Cortes found in Mexico or Pizarro in Peru. So Raleigh turns this journey up and down a river into a potential conquest that could equal Peru and Mexico. So the surprise there is his repeated insistence of the existence of these wealthy lands. So I've just realised, I think I've lost count there. And this is actually the last of the surprises. I think it's surprise number 10. I'm not quite sure. But the last surprise, I've gone over lots of the fantasies, lots of the exaggeration in this document. And the way, as I said previously, that Raleigh turns this document from what could have been quite a modest little trip up a river and down into this epic adventure with mountains of crystal Amazonian women. Mm. Comparisons with Mexico and Peru people without heads and gold absolutely everywhere except where Raleigh actually goes. So amidst all this, one thing where Raleigh doesn't seem to feel the need to exaggerate and one believable element of realism in the document is made up of his description of the Orinoco River. I've got a quotation here for example. I thought it time lost to linger any longer in that place especially for that the fury of Orinoke began daily to threaten us with dangers in our return. For no half day passed, but the river began to rage and overflow very fearfully, and the rains came down in terrible showers and gusts in great abundance. So the journey itself does get a little lost here, but this aspect of the vastness of the Orinoco and the Delta and the various islands, those trips up the tributaries, the vastness and the magnificence of this river. Amidst all this fantasy and, for want of a better word, nonsense, the reality of the vastness of the Orinoco River still comes through and that's the final surprise of this document. Despite everything, there is enough truth in this document that I can believe that it actually took place. I can believe that he saw the vastness of the river and its violence and so that's the tenth and final surprise here. So thank you everyone for listening to this top 10 surprises, just a few things that stood out in Rally's document. I think of all the documents I've covered so far, this and the top 10 events in the previous episode were the most difficult to put together, basically because the remit of this document seemed to be different overall. It was kind of selling itself as a journey, but perhaps its real purpose was this case for the conquest of the area. And as I've said previously, this is almost a predecessor to Gulliver's Travels, for example, one of those documents of people going to strange countries and discovering strange people. And this document seems to exist in some strange space between fact and fiction, which makes it interesting in itself and perhaps is one of the surprises in itself, but made it a more slippery document, where events and surprises aren't particularly so important here. If you've made it to this point, however, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Just another way of looking at the same document. Please do give it a like before you move on and subscribe to be informed of when we release the next document. Above all, of course, thank you for listening. Goodbye everyone.